Hi, y'all. You're listening to Ordinary People, Ordinary Things with me, your host, Melissa Radke, the ordinariest of us all. So it's doubtful that we have a lot of young 20-something men who listen to this program. But for those of you who do, listen to the podcast. If you are out there, 20-something men, young 30-year-old men, listen to the podcast, especially today's. But for those of you who are not a 20-something male, I bet you sure do love a 20-something male. I bet you're a mother to one or a sister to one. Maybe you're dating one. You guys need to listen to this podcast too. How beautiful it is to see someone who can, like a majority of us, tell the story of how the church wasn't always kind to them and people weren't always kind to them, but Jesus was always kind to them. And the church and the people? Well, that's just a building. Those are just humans. Both are frail and faulty. And how can we expect humans to be anything other than humans? And then that same person turn around and serve people and do it in the church? I'm sorry, but I just found it refreshing and beautiful. And y'all, all of that, all of that depth came from a millennial. Oh, what? I'm aghast. I'm really not. So perhaps we should rethink that whole there what's wrong with the world today narrative that we've got going. Okay. Okay. Lord, my guest today speaks so eloquently and charismatically. He is charming and funny. And if he thought that women who wore elastic waist on their pants were cool, he and I would totally be best friends. His name is Kavanaugh James, and he is author of the book, Higher Power Has a Name. And I cannot wait for you to meet him. So without further ado, welcome Kavanaugh James. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. Let me tell you why I'm excited that you're here. Okay, okay. So it was my assistant who found you. Oh, really? Yes. And she said, Melissa, there's this guy on Instagram. You've got to track him down. You've got to interview him. And like a ding dong, I said, okay, before I had even looked, I mean, you know, she could have hooked me up with a serial killer, but but she loved you. And I just have grown so much to love you and your personality. You're charming, you're energetic, you're funny. And um, thank you. I'm honored to have you on here. Well, I'm honored that you would have me on here. Thank you so much for saying all that. And thank you to your assistant. I know, right? (laughs) So now, do you go by Kavanaugh? I do. I go by Kavanaugh or Cav. You know, my friends call me any variation of the two. Okay, well, I'll start off with Kavanaugh, but depending on how we feel about each right, other at Right, the right, end. right. Yeah. No, if we're friends by the end of this, then it'll be Cav, Cavy, Caviar, it, whatever you That's feel. exactly right. And if it goes terribly, you're Mr. James. How's that? That's right, Mr. James. <laughs> and everyone will know. If we sign off, <laughs> thank you, Mr. James, you're going to be like, oh, God, this must have sucked. Mrs. Um, Radke, this has been a pleasure. <laughs> Well, I'm really happy to have you here. That is quite the name, quite the pretentious name. You do know (laughs) that your friends have teased you about that, right? Oh, yes. Whenever I was in elementary school, people thought that I was just automatically from a different country because they had never (laughs) seen or heard the name. So they were like, Kavanaugh, who do you think you are, British? Which I never (laughs) understood, but... I was like, okay, I guess it sounds kind of Irish. Yeah. As if only people in other countries can have elegant and classy names, you know? Right. Well, I guess that's the unspoken rule that I just didn't know at the time. (laughs) Well, I know that you are going to be new to a lot of my listeners, mainly because I'm sure, no doubt, that your following is a younger one. I was just actually telling someone on an interview that I did the other day, I love the demographic of this podcast of mine. We call it the little podcast that could because it's just taken on a life of its own. 
that our demographic really runs from about 22 to like about 62. That's great. Yeah, it's really cool. But I do know that we're going to have a healthy amount of people that have never maybe heard of you. So let's get started by you telling me who you are, who you love, who your people are. Tell me about you and your tribe and then, you know, what you do. Sure. So I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I am primarily employed as a writer. I just released my first book. So I guess I'm technically an author, but I hate even like, you know, if someone introduces themselves as an author, you're like, oh, this guy, who does he think he is? (laughs) So I, yeah, I self-published my first book this year, but you know, I grew up in the church, grew up kind of in the middle of the Bible Belt world, and then really didn't have a faith of my own until I was 18. And grew up wanting to be in musical theater. And at that time, you know, the Lord just kind of got a hold of my heart in a crazy way. And so I left my musical theater scholarship to go to school for business and to go to Bible college and did that and really started leading worship, started kind of getting involved in the church world, I guess, so to speak. But my crew, my people that uh, the Lord has, you know, kind of put me around to do, it's like half church and half Hollywood, which makes for an interesting kind of mix. I lived in LA for a couple of years and kind of my pursuit of being in creative arts and also writing at the same time just kind of got plugged into a really kind of versatile group of people that, you know, don't necessarily agree with what I agree with, don't believe what I believe, but who really know how to love people and love each other. And so my crew is is kind of mixed. It's a mixed bag. But my day to day is writing for other people writing for myself, and then using social media as a tool to encourage and bring kind of laughs to people's day to day life. And you're very close to your family. I'm very close to my family. Do they all live there in Dallas near you? Yes, everyone lives here. I've got nine nieces and nephews all in the area. So that was part of the reason why I ended up moving back from LA just to be close to the crew. You know, it's important to me. But yeah, that's kind of a mixture of my world a little bit. Well, now when you say that you write for you and for other people, Mm -hmm. do you mean songwriting in there too, or just books or? You know, sometimes it's difficult when people ask me like, oh, well, what exactly do you do? Because it's probably like four different jobs. But so I do songwrite. I write worship for my church and then also for myself and have co-written on things for other people. Mm -hmm. Then I also write social media content for nonprofits. And then I also will ghost write articles. I have obviously written a book for myself. So it's kind of a mixture. I'm also working on a script right now. So oh, wonderful. It's writing kind of in every sense of the word, I guess. When you said that, when you go, well, it's kind of weird because, you know, I do all these different things. I thought to myself when you said that, I thought, I'm literally asking him questions that I hate when people ask me because (laughs) I don't really know what to say. I'm in my 40s. I should have an answer as to what I do for a living, but I don't because it's just kind of all over the map. You know, know. I'm like, look, we can take all my little checks and add them up and I can show you where they come from. But it's about 20 different avenues. I got a lot of streams feeding. That's called the side hustle. That's called the (laughs) side hustle. And you've got a couple of side hustles going on. Tell you the side hustle is the sustainability of my life. (laughs) That's right. Now, what church do you lead worship at? Can you say that? Yes, I can. So I serve uh, at Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas. So if you know Pastor Robert Morris. I do, uh, yes. Life and all that, you know, that's kind of. Now, are you uh, at that main campus? I am. So I'm singing there probably once to twice a month. And, you know, we've got a big team. So there's a lot of amazing, amazing people there. But I've actually been a part of Gateway since probably 04. Oh, nice. Okay. It's been a while there. But yeah, I love it. And I'm really big on like, 
community in general, I think that we're meant to do life together. And so for me, having a church that's kind of like a really good kind of social base for me here, and then just doing life with people my own age who are pursuing similar things. I don't know. It's just a real gift to me. So I love my church. I love your church too. And I don't even go there and I love your church. Um, But I have visited there before. Here's one of the things I'm going to actually read something from your book and it's going to go along with what I'm about to ask you. But one of the reasons why I think that my assistant wanted me to meet you and begin to follow you so much is because our story, though you're a male, I'm a female. I'm probably God knows old enough to be your mother, but um, I'm not really. Everybody quit trying to imagine it. I'm right. No, 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 no. Um, (laughs) Our stories are really very similar. Eerily similar and similar in some, I think, painful ways, to be honest. So before my career kind of took off in a direction that I wasn't expecting, I was the worship pastor at my church for five years. Um, No worship well. It's still what I listen to and gives me life every day. So I know that kind of world. But I'm going to read you something from your book and then I'm going to explain. This is the last line of the introduction of your book. His book is called Higher Power Has a Name. You can find it on our show notes. We'll have a link there where you can get it. But this comes from the last line of his introduction. More than anything, I want you to be challenged and jump started into your true God-given identity and purpose. So he's talked in this introduction about what he hopes that you gain. But more than anything, he goes into, I want you to move into your true God-given identity and purpose. Now, first of all, that doesn't sound like millennial talk to me. (laughs) You know, people always say, oh, these millennials, what are we going to do with them? I actually tend to think that they're probably going to help us in a lot of ways. I think the same thing. I think that they are kind and sensitive. I think that they hate injustice. I think they fight for underdogs. I tend to like them myself, but that's just me. But you use this God-given identity and purpose. And a lot of people, they don't know what that is. I ended up writing a book called Eat Cake, Be Brave. And it's about what happened to me when I turned 41. Because when I turned 41, just briefly, and this podcast is not about me, and I'm a better interviewer than to know it's about me. It's not. No, I want to hear. I'm going to get to it. When I turned 41, I'd lived 16 years in Nashville. I was a session singer there. And Nashville really loved Melissa's voice, but Nashville really hated Melissa's size. And they told me that in every feasible way, literally, publicly and privately. And after 16 years, I moved back home and I became the worship pastor. As if worship pastor was that plan B job, Mm, mm -hmm. which is really painful to say now because it was the best job I've ever had. I loved it. I was fulfilled. I was alive with that job. I loved it. But when I turned 41, I blew the candles out on my birthday cake and I leaned over to make a wish. And this is what I wished for this 41st year for 12 months, God, I'm going to forget what Nashville said about me. And I'm going to only live the way you created me to be. And if it means I live plus size, I live plus size. And if it means I live as broke half the time, whatever. But I'm going to move in the purpose and identity that you created and not the one I tried to find that the world didn't care for. And I say all that to say, you're pretty young to talk about God-given purpose and identity. So tell me why that is important to you and how it played out in your life, because I'm willing to bet (laughs) our stories are kind of similar. So just to get super vulnerable, I hope your listeners are down with that. You know, I grew up really not having a sense of identity, knowing who I was outside of how I related to my family. You know, I have phenomenal parents and, you know, to this day, they are people that my friends go to for counsel and are a safe haven to everyone. So I kind of grew up with these people who were the pinnacle to me of Christian faith. And 
growing up in musical theater, you know, from the time I was four, I was acting. There are kind of conversations that start to happen about a young guy in musical theater in the Bible Belt from the time he's young. You know, if he has a higher timbered voice, I'm a high tenor. And so, you know, my voice has always been a bit higher sounding. And so, from the time I was really, really little, you know, people would tell me, don't stand like that. You stand like a girl. Don't talk like that. You sound like a girl. And it was from people that were in leadership in the church. And so I grew up with a really wonky view of myself because I was mirroring what I knew to be true about who God had called me to be and about who I was supposed to be just as a man. You know, from the time that I was early on, I had a crush on like every girl babysitter that, you know, my my parents brought. And especially the longer the hair, then the more just infatuated I was with them. And I remember this one babysitter, you know, that we had. She was getting married and kind of moving on from babysitting. I just went on into full mourning. <laughs> My parents were like, don't talk to Kavanaugh. Wendy, you know, has told us that she's got to get married. Like he can't handle it right now. And that was how I was as a little kid. But then, you know, growing up, then you just start hearing things and things about yourself from other guys in your class. And so by the time I was in high school, I really had no sense of who I was. Um, because you sexually. thought, surely I must be this. They say, well, I yeah. Am. And I mean, my first class, you know, in public school, in high school, you know, I was called a bad word used for, you know, gay men. That was kind of the identifier that was put on me. And so then, you know, you throw into that just a lot of saying, you know, people be people within the church, people being super human and flawed. And I just was like, this Christianity thing is a bunch of bull. It's a bunch of bull because I'm hearing you preach about the love of Christ every Sunday, and yet I'm not seeing it lived out. I'm hearing you talk about how, you know, God has this identity for us, and yet I have no idea how to take hold of it myself. And you're telling me at every angle that who feels natural to me and how I communicate is wrong. And that doesn't seem to add up either. You start weighing just everything that you hear. And uh, in my senior year, you know, I was about to graduate and I was about to go off and do my own thing after high school and do this musical theater scholarship. And the Lord at Gateway Church, through a friend's parent, came and gave me like a prophetic word. And I know that that sounds kind of crazy to some of you who may have not heard that, but it really just is an encouragement from heaven, from the Lord for your life. And so a pastor got up on platform and said, Kavanaugh, you've been struggling, wanting to know whether you're supposed to stay or you're supposed to go. And God's gotten a hold of your heart and you're supposed to stay. And he's changing your life from a life of entertainment to a life of ministry. And I realized in that moment and in that season that I was so wholly in need of God to be God and just come and actually say, this is who I've called you to be. I've called you to be my son and to love people this way and to be a light in this way. I just realized that my identity couldn't be made up of what I thought I was and of who other people had said I was. I had to go directly to the source, to the person who gave me my identity in the first place. Absolutely. And I never went back and checked in with him. And so it was like the Lord, when I was 18, introduced himself to me in a really tangible way where I felt like, okay, I'm actually not doing life by myself anymore. And the Lord put the right people in my life to be able to kind of encourage me into intimacy with the Lord. But identity is important to me because if I hadn't taken that time with the Lord, if the Lord hadn't arrested my heart the way that He did, I have no idea where I would be in life right now. I know for certain if the Lord hadn't saved me from going to the school I was going to, that I would be either dead or in a really bad drug dependent state, like there would have been something really unhealthy that happened 
So I just know that it's crucial in life. And for me in my day-to-day life, I've had to know who I am in Christ before I've known anything else. You know, there are so many people listening and that's going to resonate with them. It's going to resonate with them for their boys. It's going to resonate with them for their brothers. You know what I'm saying? In my situation, it was so similar. Of course, I grew up hearing, Kavanaugh, you probably didn't because you're a doll and you're cute and precious and has this adorable face and you're fun, loving, and you got a great spirit. But Melissa grew up feeling like a bit of a wrecking ball. I was just a lot, you know, I was a lot, I had a big laugh and I was really gregarious and I was outgoing. And sometimes, you know, the phrase I heard a lot and I love my mother dearly, but I heard this a lot in my house, tone it down, tone mm-hmm. it down. So I moved to Nashville, but Nashville wants you to amp it up. Right. So I amped it up, but Nashville said, we'd rather you stand in the back where they can't see you hit the high notes, but stand in the back. I didn't know what way was up. But I knew that when I looked in scripture, he had said specific things about me. And Mm -hmm. how is it that a child can be raised in the church and we can know every Bible story there is to know, but we do not know the things that God has said about us. So true. So my journey began with literally at the ripe old age of 40, kind of learning some of these truths. I mean, I'm grafted into the vine. I mean, I'm a, I'm a minister of reconciliation. I mean, I'm all these things. What did that look like for you? Now, maybe it was as simple as someone gave you a special word, a pastor spoke to you, and then voila, your life changed. But I have a feeling due to your maturity in Christ now, what was that walk walking it out? What did that look like? You know, the way that I describe it to people, because especially with identity and any bit of sexuality, anything, it's not as black and white as a lot of people would like to, I think, make it look like. And especially within the church, you know, you want to have almost the conversation of, well, what was the thing that changed for you? And then your life got better afterwards. Or what was the like one piece of truth that unlocked it? And for me, it was honestly a romance with the person of Christ. And it was that I was starting to know him and his character so much that I wanted to know what he thought about situations and about me more than I wanted to know what I thought. So it was like, you know, the kind of context that I would view everything through is through my outlook first and is to take everything that I'm experiencing and everything I'm living and view it through my lens. And the more that I got to know Jesus just in reading the word and in meeting people who actually walked in tangible love, you know, you can tell somebody who has a real relationship with the Lord that when they walk into the room, they actually care about what you're saying. They actually kind of ooze that love. And I was just becoming infatuated with him. And so it looked like daily me going to the Lord and surrendering whatever I was wrestling with. You know, for me too, I felt like I'm too much at several points, similar to, you know, I'm not sure if it was at the level that you experienced growing up, but, you know, I've felt too much oftentimes or, you know, too much for this group of friends or not enough for this group of friends. And so I would always go back to the Lord and go, okay, but who are you saying that I am right now in this situation? Who am I called to be? So now I have surrendered the things that the Lord has said, hey, this is actually not a bad thing. You know, I have a higher tempered voice. I don't stress about that anymore. I've been able to lay down the kind of physical attribute things that I thought were big definers in my life that God has never used to define me. So really to answer your question, it's been a day to day. It's a day to day going to the Lord going, okay, what do you think about this? Okay, Lord, this is what I'm feeling right now. Can you tell me how you feel about this? knowing the whole while that God's sovereignty is so much bigger than my struggling to believe truth about myself in one area. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
I can trust that he is not stressed about the timing in my life and that there are going to be days I miss it. But I know who I am in him because I do life with him. I love that. So my relationship with my husband is concrete and cemented. It doesn't mean we don't argue and it doesn't mean that sometimes we don't even create a little bit of distance. But my love, or I guess I should say my knowledge that he loves me, would take a bullet for me, is built off of the day-to-day intimate relationship that I share with him. This is what we have in Christ. And I, I'll tell you one of the things that burns me up. Mm-hmm. It burns me up when we think that we can't have that until we are late thirties, forties, mm-hmm. maybe even sixties, until we can make time for that. And I'm, I'm not trying to make you all high and lift it up, but I'm just <laughs> saying you're really young to realize the codependency that we need on Christ. Well, and I think that in large part, the reason that life with identity and sexual identity for me has been such an uphill kind of battle has been because it's been in that place that the Lord has revealed so much of who He is to me. It's been that level of dependency of me knowing that there have been zero times in my life that I've thought I have it all together and that I don't need someone bigger than myself. I'm very much aware of my insufficiencies and my dependency on Christ. But it's like, I think if people really understood that Jesus wants to do day in, day out friendship, relationship with us, then the questions that we look at, like identity and the kind of things that feel really big, they're all kind of actually made simple and brought back to the core of it all, which is just relationship. And we know who we are rightly, and we have a better sense of what is right around us when we're in relationship with the one who is right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. For the mother who is listening to this today, let's say, and her son like really would identify with your story. Heck, for the college girl who's listening today and identifies with this. Sexuality and the church. Holy cow, this podcast isn't long enough, right? Right. But my question for you is, how did you work that out in your own fear and trembling? How did you figure out, wait, I know what I like. Quit telling me what I like. Quit telling me what I prefer. Quit telling me because I talk with my hands that this makes me different than and not wrong or not worse than. But come on, because here's the thing. I wonder, Kevin, all like, wasn't that such an uphill battle because the world ain't helping either. And our culture is not helping. No, and it's not an easy conversation on either side. You know, the church kind of wants to say, okay, well, you dealt with that thing. So now where's your wife and where are your kids? And they (laughs) want you to just put a pretty little bow on it and be on your way. Aren't you married Uh, yet? Yeah, aren't you married yet? Kavanaugh, there are so many lovely girls at your church. I just can't believe you haven't found one to say yes. You know, and then the (laughs) other side. As if you're going around going, would you say yes? Would you say yes? Anybody? (laughs) like a pauper just begging for someone to marry me. (laughs) And then the other side of it is that, you know, the world and the people in my life who don't walk with Jesus, you know, kind of in the back of their mind are waiting for me to just come out and be like, you know, your listeners can't see me, but I'm putting this in air quotes (laughs) to say, you know, just be who you really are. That's the other side. So the world is waiting for people in the church who have, you know, struggled with any kind of identity, something to go back to what, they think is truth. So essentially what you're saying is the church is waiting on people to be straight and yep. the world is and waiting then, on people to be gay. I mean, let's just, let's come on, black or white, yeah. no in between. Yeah, here. it's true. And so, yeah, the way that I've had to kind of place it in my mind is to say, I'm open. I'm ready to go down that road whenever the Lord is. But then at the same time, my focus isn't even on making myself right in that area. Meaning I'm not like, okay, I need to have a girlfriend by the end of this six months or be dating and on this process. I'm pursuing my relationship with the Lord, and there are plenty of other things that the Lord is working with me on too. So it's like, 
I think the way to deal with it is to not make it a bigger deal than everything else, which is that the Lord is working on it all. And we can become really impatient and a lot of times wanting within ourselves to feel what we believe or to see what we believe. And the timing that God uses is sometimes just not what makes sense to us. And it's not within the time frame that we would like. So it really is the day in going to the Lord saying, okay, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am, Lord? Who are you wanting me to be today? Who are you challenging me to rise up and to be? As opposed to looking for ways to explain away or, you know, Lord, please fix this one thing that seems so big in my life. When the Lord's like, no, actually, that is not a big deal. I'm a big deal. Right, that's right. <laughs> like, that's something that I'm dealing with, but that is not withholding like your purpose from you. You're not stuck and, you know, standing still in the middle of life because you've got this thing. That's what the enemy is telling you. The enemy would love nothing more than to convince us that things that we're working out or what we're contending with keeps us stalled from purpose. And that's not true. Our engagement with the Lord and how we interact in community with Him in relationship, that's what propels us towards purpose. Okay, so say that again. The enemy wants us to believe. The enemy wants us to believe that our contending with, that our struggling with something keeps us stalled from purpose. Absolutely not. But it's actually our relationship, our intimacy with the Lord that keeps us moving in purpose. That is so good. And that will preach, worship leader. (laughs) That will preach. I love that because I cannot tell you how many times that I get the emails, I get the direct messages. Heck, I do it myself still. You know, I've been dealing with depression. And so therefore, when I get it fixed, I will do what God has said. Right. I totally agree with you. That's a trick. That's a trick of the enemy. It's a trick. And I mean, I even... Even in finishing, you know, this book that I just released, that was the last six months of it. I went through a huge depression, like the last tail end of finishing it, which of course, you know, when you're doing something you feel like the Lord's asking you to do, the enemy wants to come and just, you know, steal from you along the way. But I actually realized that it was the very thing, what I was just talking about, that I was walking through at that point, which was that I felt like it was inauthentic for me to release a book on a bunch of things that I knew I still had areas to work out, if that makes sense. I knew, okay, so in writing this section about forgiveness, I know this to be true, but I'm still fighting to believe it. And I know this to be true. I'm still fighting to believe it and still have to choose to believe it every day. Being able to lay that down is actually what allowed me to even finish it, was to go, no, actually, it's in my going, okay, Jesus, what do you think about this along the whole way? okay, Jesus, help me with this thought, with this idea, because you can just get stuck. You can get stuck by feeling like you don't have it all together. And I have lived that for for a long time. So I I understand that well. If I could just speak to that, I mean, haven't you ever read a book by an author that just had all the answers and they knew it all and they had done it all and they had cured themselves of all of it and they were past it, so very far past it and so removed from it. And by the end, yeah, they had given you some accessible steps, but you wanted to chunk the book out of the window. What I want, Kavanaugh, is I want to be the hero of my own story. I just want you to show me how you're doing it, even when you're mucking it up, man, even when you're slipping and sliding in your unforgiveness, but you're trying. That's what I want, because then I become the hero of my own story. I don't want to know it all. That may or may not encourage you, but... No, it totally does. I'm, Thank you. I'm, I'm the one that just wants the tour guide. Right. You know what I'm saying? The one that just shows me around. and Well, and you know what? That's how I feel too. Like I was always the person growing up who, you know, you could tell me, 
a million different times, don't do this, this is bad, or do this, this is the right way. And truth be told, I've got to experience it myself and have to actually know for myself, oh, okay, this is why I need to make this healthy choice, or this is why this bad choice is bad. And so it's almost like you want to hear other people's stories, but you don't want them to apply it to your life and say, okay, now great, I've figured it out in this area. So you don't have to struggle or go through it. Just take my answers and apply them to your life. Ordinary People, Ordinary Things is brought to you by our sponsor, Audible. If you are listening to this podcast, I already know you love listening to amazing talent and great content. So have you tried audiobooks yet? Why not, y'all? It is a thing. Get on board. For the listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial. Listen, even if you cancel, you still get to keep your audiobook just for giving Audible a try. I hear there's an amazing book called Eat Cake, Be Brave, and the author gave literally one of the single most greatest performances in the history of audiobooks, but I digress. So grab something you've had your eye on. You have nothing to lose, and I promise you'll love it. All you do is go to audibletrial.com backslash Melissa Radke right now. Why, why aren't you? Why are you? St- I will wait on you. I'm you're still listening to this. Seriously. Audibletrial.com backslash Melissa Radke. Let's do it. I want you to explain why the title Higher Power has a name. I know why. I know it's because every time I turn on a my meditation <laughs> app, it's right. like whatever that you listen that to. Yeah. Power. So talk to us yes. about it. Of course. Yeah. So the gist is I was living in LA and, you know, I have a lot of friends who are actors and musicians. And so there's a real creative kind of energy with my friend group. But whenever we start talking about faith in certain circles, I notice that the language starts to change. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood grew up in the church in the South, and probably every other person you meet has a story of some youth pastor that said something bad to them. So that's (laughs) also something to keep in mind. Like, we just got to love, you know, Hollywood. But I would kind of listen to people start talking about faith, and there would be a negotiation that would happen in the way that they would speak. So it'd be like, Well, you know, I just feel like, you know, God wouldn't allow that or, you know, like a higher power or whatever you believe. And so it's a way that a person at the table can say God and feel the table get uncomfortable. So now to make the table less uncomfortable, I'm going to say a higher power. I'm going to leave it in your hands, a higher power or whatever. If you believe in that, if you don't, you know, it's almost like just kind of throwing it out there and not taking responsibility for it. And I would hear friends over and over say this. And one night I got really irritated with a friend and I said, you know, a higher power didn't do this and this for you in your life when you were a young child that was miraculous. A higher power has a name and his name is Jesus. And you can't submit to a higher power because there's no identity in a higher power. It's abstract day in, day out as people we're fighting submission and surrender in our bones. We all want to be our own gods. And so if I can take a name away from God and make him a higher power, then I'm in somewhat control of him. That's right. That's a great point. Then I get to be God in a way. Now, we don't say that or think that when we're doing it, but that's in an essence what we're doing. So for me to call the book Higher Power Has a Name is to take that idea that we're all swarming with, which is to negotiate God out of it, to say, no, a higher power. I don't want to say God because if it's God, 
then I know he has a moral list of what he finds acceptable. And so I've got to align to him, not aligning him to me. Yeah. What did you do? Let's say you're sitting in LA and I had never been to LA in my life. Mm -hmm. And then when we started meeting the network at USA Network for the show, I got to start going. And like everybody eats avocado all the time. And it's the most wonderful. (laughs) It's just really cool. And there's no bugs when you eat outside. I just love it. Right. I know. But what did you, so I've not at all been in those situations like you and sitting around some of the people with maybe those kind of conversations. Every time I go, it's with my husband and we're talking business. But what does it do to you? Do you shrink a little bit inside? Do you feel embarrassed for the kingdom of God? Do you feel embarrassed that no one's calling him by name? That it would be like we were all discussing Kavanaugh, but nobody wanted to say his name for fear that we would be out it. I mean, how do you feel? You know, to be honest, it's a real joy for me to be in those situations. And I know that that sounds like a trite. No, but that is a special calling. (laughs) It, It is. But for me, I'm so excited and on fire about who God is and about his character that I'm willing to sit down and talk to anybody and hold his character up against whatever they think God is, because I promise you it isn't. <laughs> That's right. It isn't actually who God is. And so it goes two ways. When I hear stories of, you know, really sad things that have happened within the four walls of the church, I get heartbroken. I used to get really mad on behalf of God as if God needs me to get mad on his behalf. But I used to get really, you know, mad that people had these bad experiences in connection with him. And then I realized, okay, so my opportunity isn't so much about making right people's bad experiences with God as much as it is to give them a new experience. And so I am very vocal about my faith. Anybody who knows me knows where I stand. I don't change any bit of that when I'm at a big group dinner or negotiated away. But I get excited because I know that the Lord has given me a special gifting in how I do relationship to be able to model in some way how Jesus is relationally with us. And so I get to almost go to people and say, hey, no, so you have done life with me. And I am telling you the only reason you get to experience and enjoy these good sides of me are because I receive those good sides from the only one who only has good sides. That's right. And so it's more of an exciting thing to me. I like to be able to sit and have the conversation with someone of like, yeah, that thing you went through is horrible. And I can't even imagine how painful that was. God still is actually really, really in love with you as a son or a daughter. And he isn't bothered by that thing as much as you are, but he is hurting with you in that. It's all kind of in one bag, meaning that life can be hard and it can be difficult and God can be great and God can be amazing. And so where I've seen the disconnect and people that I talk to who, you know, have no context for the Lord is that the world looks pretty dark right now and life looks pretty dark right now, but darkness doesn't diminish light. It just doesn't. And so my opportunity is to bring and to be light. So whenever someone starts talking about a higher power or, or, you know, is using kind of wonky language, I get excited because I'm like, all right, now, okay, so let me ask you a question. When you say higher power, what do you mean by that? And then we get to have the conversation. Did you see my body language? Like I'm backing (laughs) off. I'm like, oh, confrontation. (laughs) No, but here's the thing though. It's not confrontation for the purpose of confrontation. You know, if I love someone and if I love you and we're having a conversation and I go to confront something. You're not going to feel the need to defend yourself from me if you feel that I'm loving you in the middle of it right? and that I'm not coming at you in judgment. So I'm not threatened by any position someone else could take or if there's a disagreement because I've experienced the Lord. So 
no one's taking away or adding to, you know, my belief system in those moments. I'm just getting to be. And Jesus tends to ooze out of our pores if we'll just be quiet long enough and live, (laughs) you know? So it's like, I hope that when I find myself in those situations, it's more of just an invitation to talk about, okay, who do you think God is? Okay, why do you think God's that way? Well, most of the time, people's inaccurate viewpoint of God has to do with a really unhealthy person. So if you can take people through relationships that they've had with people in the church and start to pull away those kind of views that they have put on God by experiencing people, then you can start to say, okay, look, God is actually great. Yes, there are people you've experienced that are flawed and are really broken, but the original blueprint, (laughs) the source is great. I always give this analogy that the one shop class I took in high school, the absolutely <laughs> one <laughs> shop class I took to by be able shop, to build. By the shop teacher that was missing like a finger, like there's always like one. three. No. <laughs> yeah. So mine was for the purpose of theater and building sets, which takes away any cool factor. But I was, you know, measuring out some, I think like eight by twos or if that's even a measurement and I was cutting them out. And I remember that I went to cut the second plank. And, you know, I had marked after I had measured on the first plank, you know, where my cut was. And then whenever I was measuring the second plank, I laid the cut plank down on top of the plank that I hadn't cut yet. And if you do that, your measurement is off by, it's almost like an eighth of an inch from the original measurement. And then if you keep measuring off of that last one that you draw, you're going to have a bunch of pieces of slightly different, ranging to largely different by the end of it, pieces from the original measurement. And sometimes I think that a lot of the misrepresentation within the church is a bunch of people looking at planks that have been cut off from being measured from another plank. They're looking at people's faith that has been built off of their parents' faith. Off of human after human after human. As opposed to just going to the source. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, no, I'm in the word daily. I meet with the father daily. So I get to walk in an authenticity and uh, relationship with people that comes off as real. So whenever they don't get it or, you know, have a question about that, I'm not threatened by it. It's more exciting just because then they get to meet him. Then I'm like, no, you're going to get to see who he is because he's really great. I promise you. I love that. I love that. Now, I want to close with this. I don't even know how we got on it. I think I referred to you as a millennial at the beginning of the podcast or whatever. And that's just because he's wearing a really cute hat and like a jean jacket and he's (laughs) killing it. Killing it, y'all. Hey, thank you, Melissa. Uh, But here's the thing that I find interesting about you. You love the millennial generation. You have great hope for them. You think that they're amazing. And I love that you're a voice amidst them. You also, on the other hand, love community and believe that we weren't meant to do life alone, which is ironic to me because some people feel like this generation is growing up with their heads buried in their phones and therefore they don't know how to form some of these relationships. I would love to know what you say to that because I tend to agree with both points. We aren't supposed to live life alone. We aren't supposed to be an island. And I do love millennials. Help me make sense of it. (laughs) Right. You know, I think the millennials, yes, we get a bad rep for wanting to be kind of isolated. And, you know, we are a generation that's been more prone to anxiety and depression. I think a lot of it has to do with comparison and being on social media a lot that kind of leads you to want to withdraw because you can kind of feign community. You can kind of make it up and have it just be that. To me, I think that the millennials, we respond to authenticity. And so, you know, within the church and even within older generations, 
where the disconnect has come from, I think a lot of it has been that we don't feel like we've been told the truth a lot of times and that people aren't really willing to get down and be real with us. And so there's sometimes seems to be a little bit of impatience on our part, I think. And so we kind of seem restless and we seem agitated, I feel like, to other generations. But we're desperate for community. I always explain millennials, even to my parents, whenever they're trying to understand something. You know, we grew up in a generation where information was coming online for the first time and where pretty much everything is being weaponized as a marketing tool. And so throughout the course of a day, we are fielding thousands upon thousands of messages and having to choose what to do with them, where to put them. And I think that so much of our belief systems about us and about how we do life have been kind of hijacked by culture and by social media, by media in general. But we're a generation who is incredibly innovative. We think outside the box. We're incredibly justice-oriented. Other generations will talk about us being oversensitive. I'd like to say that we're just actually aware of other people. And we don't like to hurt other people. And so what seems to be us being oversensitive is us trying to be sensitive to other people. And so, you know, I think that, yeah, we need community. And it's hard to find unless you're plugged into a healthy spot, whether it's a church or a group, or you just have healthy friends through family. But I've found that I've had to find community in my life. And so I have a really good base here in Dallas people that aren't afraid to fail in front of each other, which I think is the core value of millennial friend groups that I have seen is that there's a lot more willingness to go, okay, no, you can fail and mess up and come back into our lives and we can work out relationship. What I've seen in my parents' generation is that when there has been, you know, kind of big hurts, a lot of times those relationships end up being cut off. And so I don't know how to answer your question, to be honest. No, I love your answer. I think what you're saying is millennials don't tend to shoot their wounded, which is what some older generations do. I've listened to you describe them as not overly sensitive, but just sensitive to the needs around them. They don't want to hurt people. They're creative. They think outside the box. They hate injustice and they fight for those that are less than. And um, I will just say that that sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it it does to me too. And I mean, that's not, we have a lot of issues. And I even think the generation coming up behind us has a whole other set of amazing tools in their tool belt. I think I'm just passionate mostly right now. And the reason that I even put higher power as a name, bio millennial, (laughs) you (laughs) You know, a millennial. You're proud to be one. (laughs) I am proud to be one just because I think that we're going to move the mark when we all start working together. And I think that right now there's culturally a lot of change. And I think even within the church, there's a lot of us saying, hey, no, we haven't been actually living the Jesus model out as well as we could be. And so we're going to circle back and actually address some issues that we've been seeing for a while. As much as that's happening, there needs to be a linking of arms. And especially, you know, what I even talk to at my church and with the leaders and elders there is that, hey, we need to be empowered by y'all. We need to be encouraged and championed by you guys. Don't count millennials out just because you don't see us in the same eight to five job framework or doing the same things that you were doing when you were 23. Take time and invest in someone younger than you and like reach across the aisle that way. Some of my best friendships are with mentors who are 20 and 25 years older than me. But that's where you get perspective. And millennials are not running from older generations and we're not running from correction. 
we're running from inauthenticity. Oh, I love that. So just be real. That's right. And I wish that people didn't have to wait and hear until a pastor falls in the limelight or until someone of influence comes out with having some kind of major issue. If there was more of a dialogue of us sharing our wounds and going, hey, I know that God's healing this and I know that it's already healed in Him, but like right now it still hurts. If we could actually start doing life and being able to share that with people and to not immediately be told, okay, now you need to sit down and go and let that thing heal before anybody else catches it. Right. (laughs) Because your sin is contagious. (laughs) I remember in Bible college, you know, we would have an opening rally every semester and our president at one year, and I remember as a little 19 year old going, that's not biblical. Our president (laughs) said, he was like, we get a lot of grief sometimes for letting people go. You know, if people broke rules or whatever, Bible schools love to kick people out. And so he was like, you know, we get a lot of grief for letting people go, but you have to understand this is a race. And if you break a leg, you're not going to be able to finish the race. So we need to take you out of the race so that your leg can heal and you can race again. But then I was like, but wait, don't we remember that when Jesus was going to the cross, (laughs) that he couldn't carry his own cross (laughs) and that he legitimately had to have his friends help him carry the cross? To me, faith is not, okay, so you've got that issue, go over there and work it out. It's okay, so you can't get across the finish line. Besides, who wants to be in a race with a bunch of people that are like, kick the limp one over to the side? I mean, for people. Yeah, I don't want to have to hop over him. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm like, I just remember thinking that. I'm like, that's actually not the gospel. And, you know, the gospel is, okay, you got a broken leg. We're going to carry you. Yeah. Okay, get on my back. Let's go. Or, okay, I'm going to brace it up and we're going to walk and you may be limping on my shoulder the whole way, but you're getting across the finish line. That is the gospel alive at work in community. And that's how it should be at work between generations. And so if it's millennials who are wanting to reach across the aisle right now, and if we're kind of raising up some conversation, then great. Let's all do life together. That's right. Oh, I love it. Kevin All, thank you so much. I know you guys want to see him and see more of him. We'll tell you how you can find him on Instagram and Facebook or He probably didn't even do Facebook. Facebook's for your grandma, apparently. No, I'm on Facebook, but Instagram's better. (laughs) Instagram's your thing. You'll see this wonderful, fun-loving side of his personality. He does these crazy videos. He's a nut, and I love him. Thank you so much for being here. Don't go anywhere. Thank you. We have three wrap-up questions for you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Ordinary People, Ordinary Things. Please take a second to subscribe, and you could be eligible to win something. I mean... You won't win anything here with us, but I'm willing to bet that somewhere in this big old world, you're eligible for something. Also, please leave a review, but only if you give us a good one and not if you're mad about that whole eligibility thing. I'm sorry. Okay. I love hearing from you guys online. So be sure and talk us up and share online. You can tag ordinary people, ordinary things so that I will not miss it. Thanks again for listening. For more info on today's show or to learn more about our guests, please go to OrdinaryPeopleOrdinaryThings.com or you can check out our show notes. Okay, we're back. Thank you, Kevin All James, for... You know what? Thank you, Kev, for that's being right. a part of this that's podcast. Right. Thank you, Caviar. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I may have gone too far on that one. No, 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 no. No, you go. <laughs> okay, Dallas has got some great food. What is your go-to order at your favorite local restaurant? Oh my goodness. Okay. Babe's chicken. (gasps) Shut your mouth. David Radke took me there on Mother's Day. He goes, where would you want to go? I said, I want you to drive me to Dallas and take me to Babe's. See? Yeah, you get it. You know. But are you one of those people that go in and you order the chicken fried steak? 
I am a chicken fried steak person, but hear me out. Okay. I will do the chicken. So I grew up about 10 minutes from the original babes. Okay. And so I've done both plenty of times. Let's just say <laughs> okay. my go-to order is chicken fried steak. So if y'all don't know what babes is, but babes is a place where you go to and you can order either fried chicken or a chicken fried steak. And it comes with family style corn, mashed potatoes, gravy, salad. and biscuit and salad. And so I will order that with a big red because I'm Southern and <laughs> <laughs> and That's a little awesome. bit white trash from day to day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we went for Mother's Day and we were sitting there and she came over, she asked for our order. And we, of course, said chicken. And my son Rocco goes, I'll take the chicken fried steak. And I'm like, don't you dare. Which I'm <laughs> fine with chicken fried steak. I love it. But at Babes, like I think at that babes, you should get the chicken, but it's so great. But you know, their chicken fried steak is honestly, and I'm a connoisseur. We don't have to get into it, but I've spent many an hour sampling all the chicken fried steaks. But they really do have the best chicken fried steak. Okay, I may have to try it. I'm, I'm yeah, willing you need to. You know what? If God calls me there, I'm willing to go to bed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Listen, if God calls you to it, He'll get you through it. You know? <laughs> That's right. Won't He do it? Okay. What does friendship mean to you? Ooh, freedom to fail and not going anywhere. It's a relationship with the freedom to fail and with the security of safety of being able to fail, being able to make each other upset, but loving each other more than you are ever upset. <laughs> I love it. Knowing that at the end of the day, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. My whole thing with people that I get upset with or that are upset with me, any bit of friendship discord is that I'm like, that's fine. We can be in the middle of a fight. Melissa, if you and I were like angry with each other and walked into the same room, I would go and give you the biggest hug and we would laugh and I'd be like, well, no, we'll talk about that thing. And that's going to happen, but I'm not going to withhold my friendship and my love from you just because we're upset right now. Like, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I love that. Lastly, come on. You've been in LA enough. You know the game. Who would play you in a movie? Ooh. Isn't that a fun one? That is a fun one. Um, It's also our moments of brag a little bit. Like, if you want to say, you know, I'm Jason Momoa. I don't know. If you want to be Aquaman. <laughs> you go for it. <laughs> I want to be Aquaman. Isn't that weird though? Like whenever people ask you who would play you, because then you have to think who looks like me, but then who would people think, oh, there's no way that person looks like you. <laughs> do you ever do this? Of course. <laughs> That's why I tell you, I end every podcast with this and I love watching people squirm. That may be why I keep squirm. asking. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think as of late, I really like Ben Platt, who... He's this musical theater actor and he was in... Are you trying to explain Dear Evan Hansen to me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Do for, you not know who I am? More so to your listeners who may not know. Very true. I actually saw Dear Evan Hansen with him in it. Did you ever see that? Uh, I saw the show right after he left. I mean, no offense to Ben Platt and he's extremely talented, but you're a much better looking guy than Ben Platt. I mean, he's not uh, known for his looks. I don't even know who... You know, when I was a little, little kid and people are going to look me up and think, oh, he's lying. When I was a little, <laughs> little kid... And remember when Leonardo DiCaprio was on Growing Pains? Oh, yes, I do. So I got that. That's who people thought I looked like as a little kid. Really? That and like a little Macaulay Culkin-ish. Honestly, Macaulay Culkin's... Did you ever see The Mighty? Was that with Sharon Stone? Yes. And and he yes. had a friend and it was this big kid. I think yes. I cried yes, yes. through that movie. I yes, can't you probably did. Okay. You were Macaulay Culkin that age? Yeah, around that time. That okay. was when... Then I would like to say I kind of look like Sharon Stone. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. And everybody that knows me just rolled their eyes way back in No, no, they didn't. (laughs) I'm going to say Ben Platt, unless there's someone, I mean, that's hard. And I don't know who would look like me. You cast me. Well, you you know, and it's not even just that. It's like, okay, if they're going to make a movie of your life and Ben Platt plays you, you're winning. I mean, you're just, that's wonderful. I'll tell you why the reason that I thought that honestly is because when I listened to Dear Evan Hansen for the first time, very rarely when I listen to a musical, I am like automatically emotionally on the same wavelength. And I like understand emotionally like where he was going in songs. And so I'm like, oh, he could play me because I think we would go to the same place. I love that. that. Uh, but, yes, that makes total sense. I'm sticking, <laughs> I'm sticking with you. I like Ben Platt. Okay, I'm, okay, I like okay. Ben Platt. Oh, you like, all right, we'll take it. Yes. Have you seen Hamilton? Oh, yes. Now, this is my one brag for this interview, but I got to see the original cast. <gasps> believe it or not. That, that actually physically kind of hurt my heart a little bit. It's hurt a few of my friends' hearts. With Lin-Manuel? I know. Oh my gosh. No understudies. The night that I went, a friend of mine was kind enough to bless me with that. And I found out the night before that we were going. And when we got there, we sat down as the lights were dimming, which was stressful enough <laughs> just because I was not about to be late. But I think that night, the White House press secretary was there for Obama. And then Will and Jada Pinkett Smith were there. Wow. So in between intermission, they kind of will take all of their special guests in one room. And so it was interesting to see all the people. That, that were there. is so cool. Yeah, I've never to this day experienced that kind of like energy in one building for a live performance of anything. I mean, it was it was crazy. Okay, I have a feeling that you and I could talk for another day and uh, a half. We absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I bet you we even know some of the same people. I mean, I went to school in Dallas. I have Dallas oh, friends yeah. all over, but we can't take up any more time. So thank you, Kevin All James, so much for being here today. Thank you thank so much. You. It's been wonderful. Hey, I had a blast. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you for joining us today for Ordinary People, Ordinary Things, and a special thanks to Kavanaugh James for being our guest. Forget the word millennial for a moment. I know 58-year-olds without that good and solid perspective on Christ. Okay, so before we make remarks like, wow, it's really great that someone so young can talk like that. Before you even say, can you even believe a millennial has powerful things to say? I'm going to ask you to stop yourself. Okay, Margaret, stop it. There are those of us listening today in some pretty ripe old ages, who have yet to put in the work to learn who we are, not based on a job, not based on a relationship, and not based on who the world told us to be, but based on the blueprint of the one who created you. This isn't a millennial thing, my people. This is a Jesus thing. This is a Christ thing. This is you saying enough is enough. I'm not what she said or he said. I'm not what my mother said. I'm not even what my doctor said. I am with the one who knows the number of hairs on my head, who knew me and knew my name from the very foundation of the world. I am what he said. It's hard, though, and I know that. It's not lost on me. But you know what Kavanaugh reminded me of today? He reminded me of what happens when people who walk in the freedom of their God-given identity raise people to walk in their God-given identity. He reminded me of the power that we hold as parents, of teachers, of mentors, of pastors, of youth pastors. That's what happens when people who know who they are in Christ raise up this younger generation to know who they are in Christ. The world is coming for our kids. Actually, let me rephrase that. 
because the world has come for our kids. It's the devil at your door. And you may think that raising kids untouched by this world is impossible. I don't know. Maybe it is. But Kavanaugh James is proof that God has a name and that name is still set above any other. We don't minimize it. We don't replace it. We stand on it. Well, Melissa, I don't know, girl. If I could teach my kids that, what? It'd be a miracle? Because I'm here to tell you, miracles are all around us. We just get really used to seeing them. So we call them ordinary things. Till next time. <laughs>